Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science, Facts, and Fallacies, episode 246. My name is Cameron English. That's Liza Dunn, Dr. Liza, as we like to call her. It's nice to see everyone. Hey, everybody. Liza, how's it going? How are you this wonderful uh, weekend it is? It's great. I'm doing great. Yeah. Running around, hanging out with family, getting ready for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. We're setting up decorations. It's the time of the season. Got to slow down and enjoy it, though, because it goes by so quick. There's so much to do. So, yeah, everyone, just take a chill pill and enjoy the season if you can. Cause, uh, exactly. Exactly. It just seems like yesterday, Thanksgiving, we had Thanksgiving. I know. I'm ready for another day of indulgence in too many mashed potatoes. <laughs> so Me too. I never the, met a potato I didn't like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the true blessing of the, the Christmas season. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump into our stories today. We've got uh, three as always. Uh, so first up, autism increase mystery solved. No, it's not vaccines, GMOs, glyphosate, or organic food. Next up. Psychedelics could help veterans with PTSD, anxiety, and depression, breakthroughs, and dropping of taboos, opening new treatment possibilities. And finally, can alcoholism be inherited? Intriguing stuff as always, but uh, let's jump into this first story, Liza. This is, um, this is a, a piece originally published in 2016. This is by uh, Arvind Suresh. And um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this to see how things have progressed, because this story is several years old now. I think it's still basically correct in, in that um, we've changed the, the definition of autism. And I, more, I guess more specifically, it's called autism spectrum disorder. And there's multiple That's conditions. Right. And ever, ever since we've done that, and there's been, uh, I guess, increased awareness and, um, you know, the broader diagnosis and imp- uh, improved access to healthcare and so forth. All of these things have sort of come together to expand the number of cases and there's been this sort of uh, on, ongoing debate, I guess you could say, between, I don't know, I guess you'd call it like mainstream medicine would say this is just expanded di- diagnosis. And then you have the Joe Mercola's of the world saying, well, it's glyphosate or it's, it's chemicals. Vaccine. Right. You know, <laughs> I've heard, um, I don't know, if Wi-Fi or cell phones or um, proximity to freeways or to, to telephone Damn, lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could, yeah. Any kind of weird correlation. Um, and so, and, and, you know, to be fair though, there is, there has been a significant increase and I wasn't aware actually of how big it is. So, so back in the 1970s, it was, um, uh, one out of every 2000 children. So it was relatively rare. And then today, uh, Suresh points out that it's one in 158 year olds in, in one of the recent studies. So that's a significant increase. So I, I don't blame people for going, you know, what's going on here. And I've even, I've even heard anecdotally people that work in um in this field say you know if you talk to anyone who works with children with these conditions there's just more of them now there just seems to be more so it again i understand but we don't know exactly what it is and so that's the point um suresh is making he goes on to say we can say pretty pretty definitively it's not genetically modified crops it's not whatever pesticide um it's not any vaccine because these things have all been pretty pretty thoroughly studied um and there's there's just no there there so to speak um he does bring up an interesting point and he's quoting here the british medical journal so we can get into this in a little bit but th- this is i guess a commentary from bmj and they're talking about you know this this specific question has more or less been settled we know it's not this these handful of of causes or potential causes um, but BMJ says the damage to public health has already been 
done and it continues and they say and this is interesting they say you know as a as a longtime fan of the media you know they say uh, fueled by unbalanced media reporting and ineffective response from government researchers journals and the medical profession which is pretty interesting and i and i think that's right on the nose in terms of you know where blame needs to go um but nonetheless you know jump in here you're, you're the physician what, what's going on um in you know with this question as of 2023 yeah i think that well a couple of things so the, the whole definition of autism has evolved over time right so when i first started hearing about this debilitating disorder um i was in college i had friends that was working in a um plate a home for autistic children and these children were severely autistic with violent tendencies self-harm things banging their heads significant developmental delay and things like that and then so over the years there started being um more and more people uh, identified as having sort of autistic features, meaning that they had a delay in speech um, and then in, in speech milestones and then also having odd kind of behaviors. But these, this group that they started including in this category um, actually had, uh, you know, were, were able to go to school and things like this. So the, it, it expanded to a more mild form, although they were impaired um, and had odd behaviors and things like that, they were intellectually able to do things. Um, they weren't, you know, institutionalized. Um, and then it went from there into um, people who were just, you know, who were able to actually very achieve very well. They weren't just in, you know, special schools, but they were able to achieve milestones. So, uh, a colleague of mine's son um, has been was diagnosed uh, at age two um, and really couldn't look at people and had a hard time, a real hard time interacting with people. But he is off and graduated from engineering school. So there's a whole spectrum of people that have been um, included in this category. And then, then, the, then there was the Asperger's kind of kid and Asperger's has been taken out of the spectrum of diagnosis um, and those kids were kids that they would often call little professors that wouldn't pick up on social cues um, and would you know give formal lectures about whatever they were interested in at the time and so the, 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 but there was not a clear ever clear clinical constellation of symptoms and signs that made people go, oh, this person is autistic. So that's where the spectrum disorder came in. So you're mm. naturally going to get a higher prevalence uh, of this uh, disorder or this condition when you're putting more and more and more people in the category. And, um, and they, they were getting, you know, uh, they were requiring special ed, they were requiring extra help at school and things like that. Um, and so once again, the whole range of people in the seventies, you might've thought that this, uh, the children that were being categorized as Asperger's might've been just a little different or a little, it just, there was that what they were just a different kind of kid. It wasn't, they weren't, they were recognized as being able to function in school, but mm -hmm. they just had a, a harder time with social, uh, uh, situations. So I think that that that's that greatly expanded the number of people who were diagnosed with 
autism and autism spectrum disorder. So, so you had a whole bunch of kids being thrown into that same category. Um, I do think, though, there are difference, different, significant differences now um, in uh, birthing patterns, and people are getting having babies much later in life mm. than they were. And I wonder, and there are genes that are associated with um, the diagnosis in kids who've got pretty significant uh, autism. So I don't know if you know about Peter Hotez has a daughter that's uh, got a, who's got pretty significant autism, required you know special uh, training and stuff like that, and it's not been able to. Um, she's social and things like that, but she's she's got uh, some delay and so um and has required significant uh uh extra help um and so i think that that um they have found genetic associations that show that um prior to birth that, that there's already an ongoing process in the brain that uh that contributes to it and he's got a book that he's written about it um uh, called because uh his daughter rachel uh some, uh, I'm trying to remember the title of the book. I'll have to look it up. But uh, I think it's an interesting uh, perspective because he's obviously very involved in the vaccine debate. And no, vaccines did not cause Rachel's autism. Um, mm. And that's the, so he's trying to help dispel that myth that was propagated by Andrew Wakefield and the Lancet. Um, so, uh, so there are a couple of things. People are having babies later and that may contribute to it. To it. There is uh, a, there are some genetic features to it. Um, it's a spectrum disorder. So a lot more people are getting diagnosed than before. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think we have a real clear understanding of nuances of all of it, but it is not um, associated. It's not, it's not caused by vaccines. It's not caused by organic food. It's not caused by Jenny McCarthy. It's not caused by <laughs> any of that stuff. Um, and it gets in a lot of people for different reasons um, make claims like that. So there are people who are genuinely concerned about their kids and, you know, kids start getting their vaccines at the same time that they start seeing these delays. So people make that association and get very worried about it. Um, but it, it's, there's no definitive evidence that that's the case. Yeah. I think uh, people tend to overlook how simple this could be because it's been so um, politicized is the wrong word, but it's been so inflammatory as a discussion for the last mm -hmm. 20 years at this point. But I, I looked at one study, this is from uh, 2019, I want to say, but one of the points they made is that um, in the 1980s, there, if you had children that uh, would have been diagnosed with a developmental language disorder, you know, mm -hmm. a, a physician would look at them today and go, oh, that, that child is autistic or, or is on the spectrum, right? right. It's just because the, because the criteria have changed so much. But I think, you know, that kind of a simple explanation, it's not totally satisfying, especially if you're a parent or if, you know, this, uh, this affects your life, but that seems to make sense to me. You know, the fact yes. that over time we just get better at identifying certain conditions and, yep. and treating them ultimately, which is, which is really good news. But um, it's not just, and one thing I want to stress, because I think there's also a tendency to, like we, we, we shoehorn, shoehorn this discussion into uh 
well, autism just is a thing and there's more people that are diagnosed with it and it's not GMOs and vaccines. Have a nice day. And we sort of prepackage it, but there's yeah. been, there's been lots of studies, you know, so it's not just like people are trying to defend these technologies. They've looked at um, maternal smoking. They've looked at vaccines. They've looked at um, pesticides, but then they've also looked at like IVF because there was speculation for a while that that was contributing to the uptake, you know? So, I, I mean, those at least sound plausible to me. So mm-hmm. in other words, it, it sounds like what's happening is, researchers are going through these and they're going, well, this might be possible. This might be possible. And they're just knocking them down one at a time until they settle on something that makes sense. And it doesn't sound like anything does. It's just some combination of genetics and there's maybe some factor we haven't yet identified. That's right. And the, some of the people that are being classified as autistic um, also, um, I actually almost think that it might be a little bit selected for. Um, and the reason why I think it might be a little bit selected for is because they, they, those a lot of autistic kids are able to really, really focus on uh, an idea. You, you hear the whole idea about savants, right? People mm-hmm. who have this incredible memory, and they can, and they can, um, uh, or, or just an incredible skill that they're very, very good at. And I wonder, it makes you wonder about you know the kind of people that were looking at the constellations and for mm-hmm. a long enough time to be able to see a pattern, be able to pick it up, be able to, you know, make scientific advances. Um, you know, people who are very social tend to be a little bit more ADHD kind of, right? Mm-hmm. And, and bounce from one thing to another. You can really, really focus on one scientific idea. I wonder if you're not a little bit less um, you may be more introverted or you may be a little less um you know, social, but you've got this, this gift in a case, and I'm not trying to downplay some of the severe cases of autism, but as if you, as some people have a gift that they, that they make these incredible scientific discoveries. I mean, if you tried to make me discover calculus, that would be a disaster, right? <laughs> so, but, but, you know, Newton, um, and just the, the scientific minds that had to think about things so deeply um, to be able to invent a whole field of science or a whole field of math, you wonder if that that their mind wasn't wired in a way. Well, their mind is wired in a way that's different than mine or yours, and and you know everybody's got their own unique feature to bring to it. So I suspect that what is some of the people that are being called autistic now were key to advancing really important um, scientific principles. Yeah, I have no doubt. I, I don't know. Well, I guess I shouldn't say I have no doubt that it seems quite likely to me that throughout history, like people that are just brilliant authors or scientists or musicians, you know, there's just something slightly different, right? Right. If That's you, right. You can say neurodiverse or what, like whatever the, the term is, but you, like there's just something most people, right? They, they grow up, they get married, they have two kids and they work. In and an they're office. ordinary. Yeah. Right, right. And that's, and I'm not knocking that because that's my life and I dig it. It's an awesome life. But, you know, to, to discover calculus or to, do, you know, that just takes a, a different mind than, yes. than most of us possess, you know. So, you know, I don't know what to do. And if you think it. about Temple Grandin, who's a very famous uh, autistic woman with a PhD who's designed uh, over a third of the uh, cattle runs for uh, getting dipped in it get 
but it, before they go to the uh, slaughterhouse, they get dipped in into a pond, and they there. I, I shouldn't be talking in, in great detail about it because I don't know enough about it. But she's designed these things where cattle used to have to be driven into them, and they were scared. And mm-hmm. when she and, and now they actually go very willingly into them, and it, it's 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 a fascinating story. But she's autistic, and she's profoundly autistic the way she describes the way she sees things she can see almost things in 3d it's almost like video going through her head mm-hmm. and it's fascinating to read what she talks about because she's got clearly uh, normal above average um, intelligence and has done really really impressive um, things for her career yeah that's great that's great I, so i mean we need maybe we need a certain set of people that just look at the world differently and that's that's okay you know but um I guess there's just no definitive answer. And and I we've talked about the media angle before, so I don't think we have to dig into that. But just I think the point there is that you had the media hyping a story for decades, you know, right? There's this Wakefield guy, but they, they never said it, but the, the implication was, you know, he's sort of oppressed by the medical establishment. Or at least the reporters would would, you know, they would let yeah. that on and they would sort of leave it to the reader to develop that in their minds. You know, it was really disingenuous. It really drives me nuts, but he patented three vaccines to replace the MMR. Right. Right. He thought he was going to make a whole lot of money suing pharmaceutical companies. That's what came out in the investigation. So he had, he had a completely ulterior motive and all of, all of his, the, the, the story was completely fabricated that he, that the article that he wrote was fraudulent um and because of that children have died because they have not gotten the mmr so he's yeah i have no use for that yeah it's completely yeah yeah he's an awful human being mm-hmm. <laughs> this is just not a pleasant mm-hmm. person to you know put people in harm's way like that yep. um so yeah there you go no no answer are you aren't you glad you listened to science podcasts <laughs> 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 you know the search continues um so, so speaking of things that we don't have conclusive answers on, Liza, I, and I think this is sort of a pet issue for you because you you know quite a bit about it. So this next one about psychedelics, this is a story by uh, Mark Satter writing for Roll Call. It's called Psychedelics Could Help Veterans with PTSD, Anxiety, Depression, Breakthroughs and Dropping of Taboos, Opening New Treatment Possibilities. So the gist here is that um, these drugs, psychedelics, magic mushrooms, uh, MDMA, this whole class of drugs, if you can put them all in the same class, I'm not sure. Maybe you can clarify. Yeah. That, so. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <well>. okay. Um, <laughs> they're still illegal here. They're obviously widely available. So you have um, military veterans and p- other people that have experienced real severe trauma are turning to these drugs and they're reporting apparently very positive results, you know, so, so their, their depression goes into remission or their PTSD I don't know if clears up is the right way to put that, but like life becomes manageable when they have access to these. Um, and the story goes on to say that there's this bipartisan push in Congress. You have AOC, uh, who's probably as progressive as it gets in terms of mm-hmm. Congress people. And then you have Dan Crenshaw, who is like, you know, just a meat and potatoes kind of like God military kind of conservative. Yeah. You know, so it's a pretty fascinating situation in that you have people that don't see eye to eye on anything most likely. That's right. But, but on this, they're going, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's some benefit here. 
Um, and and I'll, I'll turn it over to you. You know, I mean, I don't I don't have much to say except if it works, then you know what the hell, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I think it'd be really really important for the treatment of these really intractable disorders is a lot of times. Um, mm -hmm. So MDMA ecstasy Molly um, is. Uh, it, it actually has a really long name. It's 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine. And it had a little bit of a heyday in the uh, late 70s and early 80s when psychiatrists started using it um, for uh, depression. Um, and it modulates serotonin levels in the brain, right? So mm -hmm. what it does is um, kind of like an SSRI. It's a little bit different because um, it's got some amphetamine hooked in there. Um, it, it, when you have high serotonin levels in your brain, that's associated with better mood um, and are higher. And so what it does is it gets into the nerves in the brain that release serotonin. And it makes the little, the, so the neurotransmitter is carried in little packets in, at, at the ends of the nerves. And it makes those packets leaky and then it starts pumping that extra serotonin out of the brain or out of the neuron. So it's now floating around in brain tissue having its effects. So um, that's how it works. Um, and so some people call it an entheogen, finding the God from within, or um, an empathogen because it makes you more empathetic to people and things like that. And so anyway, they were using it and they were finding that was beneficial in patients with depression and things like that in, in, in the uh, clinical setting. But it started getting diverted and made its way to the rave scene. Um, <laughs> and people were, were using it a lot. Um, it, was, it, it was popular on college campuses at raves. It was popular in uh, different communities at, at parties and things like that. And, um, but it came to a screeching halt in... 2002. And the reason why is it was an article that was published in Science um, that had come out of Johns Hopkins had discovered in monkeys, if you had given them one tablet of ecstasy, I guess, that, how, how did it go? They had given a tablet of, I guess monkeys had gotten a total of four to eight tablets over a certain time period. And they sacrificed half the monkeys and looked at their brains. And lo and behold, there was massive neurodegeneration of the serotonergic and dopaminergic cells in the brain. And so there was this panicked report that went out saying one pill can do this because they were very small doses. Mm -hmm. One pill can really cause massive neurodegeneration. And they sacrificed another set of monkeys several years later and the it's still persisted and they were very concerned about this. So mass panic, lots of ecstasy had been scheduled before, but um, it was just, but now there was public panic over it. The psychiatrists that had used it in the clinical setting said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If you have massive neurodegeneration in your brain because of this exposure, you should have some phenotype, some physical uh, characteristic that demonstrates that you should have muscle wasting, you should have abnormal behavior. And we've given this medication to multiple patients and they don't 
fall apart. You know, if you get Alzheimer's, you forget stuff. If you get holes in your brain, you're not going to, you're not going to function normally. Right? right. And they had, they said, this doesn't make any clinical sense. So the researchers went back and they looked at the actual drug that they had given the monkeys and had to retract the paper because it was methamphetamine, <laughs> not MDMA. And that actually makes sense. If you think about it, Crescent's blood brain bar barrier, um, very better than amphetamine. And if you think about chronic methamphetamine users, they have jaw clenching. They get wasting of their muscles. They get, get, uh, they get, they get tweaking. Have you heard that term where they have psychomotor confused agitation? They, they, if you, you, a couple years ago, a, uh, uh, guy who took, what are the court guys that take mug, mug shots, put up a thing on a website called faces of math. And you saw how people's features completely, uh, changed over a two year period from the multiple times that they got arrested. It's a really interesting thing to look yeah. at. So there are actual neurologic features that you can see with chronic Matthews. And it's fascinating that that's what the, con the confusion was. So that's MDMA. So how did, how did that, how did that happen? I, I, I'm just like, like any researcher, I, I hope if you're, if you get money to study this, you can tell the difference between, MDMA and methamphetamine, right? Because they're well, yeah, you should. But if you've got <laughs> you know solution in a bottle and says methamphetamine, and then MDMA and MDMA has methamphetamine, maybe at the end of it, right? It, it's this is maybe um, you know a lab tech mixed them up. Maybe, who knows? But yeah. they use the wrong compound, and so but but it should tell you that maybe meth meth itself is actually way worse, right? Right. right. So. So back to this is that if, it, if it's really helping people with, um, with refractory depression, I, and I think it's worth looking at. I think it's worth looking at because a refractory depression or, or PTSD is debilitating. And um, I, I think that maybe now there are some side effects. You got to be careful. Um, if you're buying it at a rave, um, you don't know what you're getting. And there are some very toxic uh, analogs that are on the market that cause people to seize and have uh, and, and have heat stroke essentially like uh paramethoxy amphetamines often sold as or pmas often sold as uh mdma or ecstasy and so you don't know what you're picking up from strangers when you're buying stuff like that I see. So, so those stories of people overheating at raves that's probably what happens is they get they get a, a bad drug yes okay yep and mdma though can make you have seizures also if you, because people are drinking 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 lots of water mm -hmm. right at these raves and they are not replacing salt and then if you've got uh it can cause a serotonin like effect so you can get too much you can dilute your blood too much and you wind up getting uh seizures because of water intoxication um really yeah so yeah wow. so people are more prone to that and um yeah there are a whole variety of things you can get serotonin syndrome if you mix it with uh, other things that cause high levels of serotonin. That that's that you, you can die from that. But if you're using it in a way, if you're using it in a dose that might have a therapeutic effect, I mean, we put kids on amphetamine all the time for ADHD, right? So, mm -hmm. I, and if you have too much amphetamine, you can get sick too. So, once again, the dose is a poison, and uh, PTSD is debilitating. And so, I think that there's 
enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that it's worth looking at. Um, and that's that. Now, for the other stuff, um, like LSD, and I think we talked about this, maybe magic mushrooms. Have we talked about this in a previous yeah, yeah, podcast? Yeah, with the Albert Hoffman discovering LSD. Um, and people going down, what they mentioned in this article was people going down to South America because LSD is still Schedule 1, so they couldn't get that, or they have a hard time getting magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, tryptamines look, they're tryptamines, and they look like serotonin. And once again, serotonin is your happy neurotransmitter. And so um, when people take these, they have an elevation of mood, just like serotonin. Uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They this these are agonists, so you get more serotonin floating around in the brain, and people tend to have better mood. Um, ayahuasca, which is what's mentioned in this article, is found in South America, and it's used in shamanistic rituals a lot, um, and um, it's for the, the the indigenous people who are using it are using it in a way to sort of communicate with other the other world or to, you know beyond their own mm-hmm. imaginations right and what's interesting about the the um it's it's a vine um that is boiled with a, a different plant that has uh, the leaves of a different plant and it's boiled and the vine actually has um a monoamine oxidase inhibitor in it, and or a couple of them, harmine and harmaline, and uh, MAOIs actually were our old antidepressants that we used to use, mm-hmm. um, and, and they are one of the very first antidepressants that they used that that, that people were used, um, and so uh, they pre- they prevent the breakdown of neurotransmitters, and so you get more serotonin floating around your better mood. Um, they also so the 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 uh, leaves have um, a the more psychedelic effect. So a psychedelic is different than like ecstasy because a psychedelic you hallucinate with ecstasy. You have like a, maybe an otherworldly experience, but you're not actually hallucinating. And so they have dimethyltryptamine in there. So DMT is what makes people hallucinate. They'll go down there and they will, and it gets across, it can cross the gut and into the blood brain barrier because of this, MAOI that um, they have. So people spend two or three days vomiting because it has effects on the gut, but and tripping, and they come back and they report that they have a, a, an incredible change in perspective, and they feel better in terms of their mental health. And sometimes it just takes one time to do this, and they they really turn around their uh, depression. So it's kind of fascinating. Um, but once again, you have to be very careful about, you know, mixing other drugs. You, you don't want to get serotonin syndrome. You don't want to get, you know, uh, which is like heat stroke. Um, and so you, you don't want to, you don't necessarily want somebody who's got a psychotic disorder having this either. So these, these haven't been tested extensively. I think that need to be very rigorous tests and the horse may be getting out of the barn before we have definitive mm-hmm. information. My caution on this is I think that we've gotten very lax about the side effects of different drugs. Um, and it's caused harm. I think that we've seen that with the, uh, opioid crisis, um, which is now fentanyl, um, largely. Um, and I think some of our harm reduction 
uh, techniques have actually led to more harm. Um, I think we're seeing some of the consequences, unintended consequences of widespread marijuana use um, that actually are not helpful. And I think romanticizing this, we should, we should be cautious about. Yeah. It seems that probably one of the best ways to sort of mitigate that would just be, I don't know, does Congress have to deschedule it or tell the DEA to deschedule it or whatever? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they'll they'll have to go through. I don't know what Congress's role is in it. I think that Congress, you know, obviously with Dan Crenshaw and AOC, um, that Congress actually passed an act about uh, ecstasy. I want to say in 1986, um, making it a, a Schedule One, so you couldn't use it, right? Um, but if you could get it to a uh, Schedule Three um, or Schedule Two, that that means you can prescribe it. But you have, depending on the schedule, you have different circumstances under which you can prescribe it. Mm. Schedule one, you can't prescribe. There's no, um, there's no uh, medical use for it. So you'd have to bump it down to a, a different level. Yeah. But if you want a, jo- a giant bottle of vodka, that's just down yeah. at CVS. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> so that's go exactly knock yourself right. out. Yeah, that, I don't know. That's always the Achilles heel, uh, you know, because I'm I'm definitely sympathetic to some of the arguments against harm reduction, which I think is a, a misnomer if there ever was one, right? Yes. By harm reduction, yeah. you mean, uh, you know, needles all over your kid's playground and uh, right. drug, drug dealers hanging out. Then, yeah, harm reduction. <laughs> yeah, um, right. And that's that's the problem. I, I think that uh, I think that we've normalized that kind of stuff. And I think that that causes problems. I think yeah. that causes problems. Yeah. I, I'm just, just spitballing, but I think maybe that like the sort of drug warrior mentality really unleashed that side of drug advocacy. Like people just yeah. like full bore. They're like, not only are drugs not bad, they're good. And people yes. you know, like, it's sort of like, I don't know. It seems like it created this whole counter counter culture culture yes yeah. exactly um, and yeah and i think that yeah i think that we got i think we've got to have a balance you got to have to understand when you understand something biochemically and pharmaceutically um i think that there may be some benefit to exploring this and we do this with all sorts of drugs right not just therapeutic drugs not just illegal drugs but yeah yeah yeah, and they're not. It's not like they're non-existent now. I was at my buddy's house earlier today, and he sh- was showing me a YouTube video. There's, there's apparently there's artists now, like musicians or singers or whatever. But their thing is like, I do these drugs, and then I few mu- f- uh, film music videos of myself, you know, prancing through a forest. It's like so the <laughs> people that want these get them, you know. So maybe the sensible thing is, is you know, let's get smart people to study them and figure out, right. you know, how to dose them and all that. So, yeah. Okay. Interesting stuff. Uh, I'm never, uh, you know, ho- I mean, if hopefully I never need it, but you know, I don't. Yeah, right. These sound quite horrifying. You know, <laughs> I've heard these stories yeah. of people trooping and. Yes. Yeah, un- unpleasant. Anyways, whatever. Okay, uh, alcoholism. So uh, this is a this is interesting. Um, this is a blog post actually from Twenty Three and Me. This you know spit in a tube and then they tell you if you're from uh, you know what part of Europe you're from or whatever. Um, but they're talking, this study was originally published in 2018, and this is the blog post, and they've updated it to sort of make sure it's current in terms of what they understand about it, I think. But um, this was uh, researchers from the uh, University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, and they've identified some genetic variants that seem to correlate with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently, 
they're excited because this is a very robust data set because it comes from the UK Biobank, which is just, it's a giant database of medical and genetic information on people. So it's a lot more robust than, you know, we recruited some people and they told us that they eat this many slices of bread and therefore, you know, eating bread causes, you know, your foot, your left foot to grow longer. Like it's much, <laughs> it's much more of a, it's a much stronger correlation, which is cool. But the thing that, that, that and by the way, the study is in the American Journal of Psychiatry. So it's a big uh -huh. journal as well. Um, the thing, and they report this here, and maybe you can comment on this. The thing that's odd, though, is that alcoholism correlates with psychiatric disorders. It correlates with obesity. So, and it correlates with, um, I want to say, I don't know if they mentioned here, but like trauma, you know, so like, like experiences in life that you go, I need a break, like I need to escape from this, right? So people go, hey, you know, Budweiser, right? Right. Um, so I guess the I, and again you're the doctor so jump in and explain this but it seems to me that maybe have they really found something conclusive or at least that points us in the right direction or have they just said we found people <laughs> they have genes and they have lots of problems you know it's like t tell us what's going on here yeah so I think that I think that once again correlation is not causation I don't think they and different people have different polymorphisms or change different responses let's just say that they're they're biologically different than other people and so uh they, they react to things differently right so let's just say people who have uh depression or schizophrenia or um other disorders um that are difficult for them uh, may compensate with that by drinking more so is this a real kind of association a true association or is it true true and unrelated um you know are, are they drinking in response to their their stress in life and are what you finding around what you purport to be uh, uh a, a gene that confers a higher risk of alcoholism mm -hmm. really a gene that goes along with these these other psychiatric disorder so that that's that's one thing the other thing is that um people have different responses to alcohol um it, some people metabolize it less well and so you'll see people who have who are missing or have a lower uh, level of al or al aldehyde dehydrogenase which is a middle step of alcohol metabolism will get flushed and will feel nauseous and will not like to drink. Um, you see that uh, Northern Europeans and Caucasians actually are much more prone to getting full-blown DTs when they're withdrawing from alcohol. So they'll have delirium tremens where they get the shakes and they can hallucinate and they can, they can actually wind up dying from alcohol withdrawal. Um, you tend to see that in European populations and they have uh, a polymorphism, polymorphisms around their, what they call a certain receptor in their brain called the NMDA receptor. Um, and so it, it's, and, and interestingly enough, that receptor is associated maybe with some schizophrenia as well. So um, it's, it's hard to say from what I am seeing that there is a, uh, it, that there is a causal relationship between this set of um, uh, this, these genes that they've identified. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I do think that there are inheritance patterns of 
alcoholism. But I think they're going to be vague. I think they're going to be vague like autism is. Uh, I think you're not going to, until we get much more granular detail, which AI might be able to do, Mm -hmm. but until we get much granular detail, I think it's hard to say this is a cost. Yeah. Yeah, and and maybe you addressed this and I just missed it, but um, so if you suck or if you're worse at metabolizing alcohol, you're more prone to abuse? No, no, you're less prone. Okay. You're less prone because uh, okay. so okay. so uh, we, we, you, you get a disulfiram effect. Disulfirams, alcoholics who take disulfiram can't break it down very well, and so they get an intermediate metabolite, acetaldehyde, and acetaldehyde, which we talked about a little yeah. bit um, yeah. with the yeah a couple weeks ago. But if you can't break that down, you get um, nausea, you get flush, you feel really lousy, you get dizzy. Um, and then, so in Asian populations, you tend to see that a little bit more. So that's obviously inherited. In European uh, populations, you see the, um, more of the alcohol withdrawal, um, which you don't necessarily see in other populations. And so mm, that's okay. probably genetic too. So I wouldn't be, I think that, that there are definitely families that have histories of alcoholism sure. in them and people who really have a hard time stopping drinking. I got um, so I think that there's probably a genetic component, but I don't think that we're detailed enough. I also am not sure I'm crazy about 23andMe having that yeah. granularity of detail um, <laughs> and telling people that just because they've got, where do you take this? Um, is the World Health Organization going to tell you you can't drink alcohol because you've got these genetic features? I'm not sure I like that. Right. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll be just fine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Over my dead body. These cl- right. clowns in uh, in who gonna tell? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, psychopaths. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh, just just as a final thought here, I, you know, I wonder if as interesting as this is, and to a certain degree, it is helpful, but it seems to me that issues like drug abuse go really deep, and they do mm-hmm. like like they go into into parts of people's lives that we really don't like to deal. with. You know, yes, like that's a, exactly right. Like as a society, you know, to tell some people like, listen, you have a problem with moderation in all aspects of your life and uh, you need to work on that. Right. That's becoming increasingly unpopular. And even um, it, it's seen as like hurtful or, you know, it's yeah. judgmental to say, how dare you tell me, you know. So I, I don't know. It almost seems like we're sort of wasting our time because we're like, oh, this gene correlates with this and you can't metabolize this chemical and blah, blah, blah. But when you get to the end of the road, it's like, well, do what you want, you know, because like. Do what you want, right? <laughs> do what you want. And yes, your life has a whole tra- a destructive trajectory, right? And it, it, it impacts other people. So I do think that there is room for telling people to moderate their behavior. And I I think it's important to be able to do that as a society and watching society kind of fall apart because we're telling people that they can do whatever they want. Right. Yeah. Not that I have all the answers, right. And I'm not, no, neither I do I. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, like I'm hardly a, you know, a, a prohibitionist or whatever. Right. I, yeah. there's, there's room for enjoying things in life. Don't get me wrong, but agreed. I don't know. I, a balance was the point you made earlier. It just seems we're not very good at that. It's either like, you know, the government tells you everything you can and can't do, or it's just a free for all. It's like, Hey, or <laughs> pain patients can't get opioids. And uh, yeah, let's decriminalize heroin in, uh, in, uh, in 
organ, right? Yeah. But if you're a pain patient, oh my gosh. Or if you're a doctor who prescribes an opioid, right. oh my gosh. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, the hospital's out of fentanyl patches, but uh, just go down the street, right? They got like the really <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. So the stuff that uh, stuff you can get in a dose from an expert. Nope, that's not. Nope. nope, nope. nope. But if you want like a phony pill for 20 bucks, go see Fred on the corner. Have at it. (laughs) Don't do that, anyone. No, no, this is not, this is not constitute medical advice. (laughs) And even if it were, that would be horrible advice. That's horrible advice. Don't take any drugs based on anything you see on the internet. Okay. That's just good advice. All right. We're done. We'll leave it there. Thank you all for joining us as always. Follow us on Twitter x i feel like it's just going to become twitter x now it's like because no one wants It'll to call twix. It. there you go no one wants to call it x i don't it just sounds kind of stupid um, no it should be twix yeah twix twitter <laughs> x whatever that social media platform we're on there we have a good time come follow us it's at dr liza md at cam j english genetic literacy project is at genetic literacy follow them read their content because they put this whole thing on for us thank you so much and with that we will see you next week Bye.